In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Everybody, welcome to the True Life Podcast. I have an amazing guest today, Dr. David Solomon. He's the author of several books. He is uh, his new book, The Seven Deadly Sins: How Sin Influenced the West from the Middle Ages to the Modern Era. Uh, he's the director of undergraduate research and creative activity at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia. He is an expert on the Flintstones, um, <laughs> <laughs> amongst many other things, and. I just want to start off by telling everybody this book is well worth your time. It is so dense. It's got so much good information and it crosses, it crosses like millennia. It seems like it, it goes way back to, to mysticism and so many contemporary philosophers and it ties so much together. And I just want to say thank you, doctor, for leaving a trail of breadcrumbs for people to follow the ideas of those that inspired you. I think that's a great way to to start a book and allow people to see where you came from. Is there is would you like yeah. to maybe introduce some a little bit more about yourself? Or yeah, well, about thank you, George, and thanks for having me. Um, and I, I love that 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 metaphor of the breadcrumbs because that really is kind of the way that my mo my own mind works. So, um, but yeah, as you as you say, I'm uh, here in Newport News, Virginia, down near Virginia Beach. Um, came here five years ago to open up the Office of Undergraduate Research and Creative Activity after about two decades as a professor of English. Um, and my uh, area of specialization is medieval and Renaissance literature, religion, and culture. Um, I've written uh, now four books. The most recent one is this book on the seven deadly sins. Um, and uh, I do love the Flintstones. <laughs> what do you think it was about Grand Poobah? They were like the loyal order of the water buffalo. Did yes, you they that were. Part? Very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I aspire to be the Grand Poobah. Someday, I think, someday I will be the Grand Poobah. Well, if you're the Grand Poobah, then I want to be a loyal order of the water <laughs> buffalo. <laughs> you know, so I wanted to maybe start off with, you know, in the in the I thought maybe we could start off with the introduction. Again, sure. the, the introduction that you wrote 
was really well done. And it was almost like two books in one. It was like a little bit of an autobiography. Yeah. And I, I think that that's important to thoroughly understand one's ideas. You must understand where they came from. So could you tell us a little bit about the introduction? Yeah, sure. I, I do think that it's helpful um, to know that about the author. Um, and there's some debate in the academic world about that. Um, and of course, I was I was raised and trained in in the academy to think that you, you don't bring in the personal um, in an academic study. And then um, Stephen Greenblatt. Um, wrote a book uh, called Hamlet and Purgatory. Um, I, I don't know when it came out. I forget. It must have been the 1990s, maybe. And in that book, he sort of established the the reason for him writing it in the introduction with an incredible personal story about his own life. And I was really struck by that. And I said, oh, you, you can do that? Um, and of course, you know, eventually then um, realize that, well, it's my book, I can do whatever I want. Um, but I, I think it is helpful to understand how I got interested in this um, in this topic. Uh, I grew up in, in the Bronx in New York, uh, raised a Jew, um, a, a, a faithful Jew, um, a cultural Jew more than a religious Jew, more, more interested in, in, in bagels than, than Torah, um, and uh, probably still am, which is probably my, my downfall. And um, but I was very, very interested in religion as as a child and was uh, very faithful to my to my Jewish faith, um, ended up being bar mitzvahed from an Orthodox synagogue in the Bronx, um, not because my family was Orthodox, but only because that was the, the synagogue in the neighborhood. And um, up until the time I was really about 12 years old, a lot of my teachers thought I was eventually going to be a rabbi. Um, and a colleague of mine pointed out a couple of years ago that, that, that I am a rat rabbi means teacher. And that's what I do. Um, when my grandmother died, when I was 13, that kind of changed the, the, the earth under my feet. And, uh, in many ways, I, if, if I didn't lose the faith, I started questioning my faith and questioning the nature of faith in general. I knew nothing about anything really other than Judaism at that point. Um, I went to school at a public school in the Bronx and directly across the street, not 50 yards from our front door was, was Our Lady of Refuge, a parochial school in the Bronx. I had no idea what went on over there other than the fact that they wore uniforms and they got different holidays off than we did. Um, but then when I started college, I went to Fordham University, um, which was not far from, from where we were living. Um, we had since moved to New Jersey and um, always wanted to go to Fordham. And at Fordham, of course, got a, a great Jesuit Catholic education. And uh, theology courses were required. And so I remember sitting in the Foundations of Christian Theology course freshman year with Father Baldwin, man with the largest ears of any human being I've ever met. And it was me and, and 29 Catholics. And I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. I had no idea what was going on. I, I will never forget the day that we discussed the Trinity. I was completely baffled. Um, and I still have the textbook from that class sitting on my shelf here in the office. It was, it was, a, a, it was a formative moment. Um, from there then, the following year, I took another, another required general education course and we read um, John Milton's Paradise Lost. And that changed my life. Um, he was able to describe not only 
the narrative of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, and then the the um, the redemption, but also with a depth into these characters where we got to understand what was going on in Adam's mind, what made him decide to eat the fruit when Eve offered it to him, um, what was going on in Satan's mind, why did he fall from heaven? And so all of that kind of grew then into this um, incredible self-training, more or less, in uh, Catholicism and the history of the Catholic Church, which I then pursued some more in graduate school as a medievalist, um, wrote my doctoral dissertation on Jesuits in the 16th century, and got very involved in, um, in the world of, of Catholic study and Catholic academics. And um, that's where I'm at now, and I, I still teach. I'm, I, I teach a course on the Bible as literature, which I'm teaching this fall, um, and uh, teach a course on heaven and hell and all sorts of topics like that. So that's kind of the, the, the thumbnail sketch of how I got sort of set on this path. Of course, there's a lot of, a lot of stories in that introduction that I'm, I'm sure that you probably picked up on that, that I could relate of specific things that happened, which were, were really, um, if not formative, really kind of ground shaking to me, changed my life. Yeah, it it I often see a similarity in people's past, and it is that questioning faith that begins people's path. And you know, I, I live by this idea that has really come to to build in my soul lately that is like our greatest tragedies are our greatest gifts. And it's so hard when those tragedies happen to you to understand that that's your gift. It is. But if you like you said, you know, I, I get. I wish you could say I got goosebumps when you, when you said, "Oh, uh, you know, when she passed away, it's like it made me question my faith." Like that—that's God, like reaching out to you and say, "Listen, I, I need you. I need yeah. you to start learning. Pay attention." You know, and it reminds me too of, you know, without giving away too much of the introduction, you told a story about a, an elderly man, yeah. um, with his cane going up and practicing, and and could you share? Would that be okay if you shared sure. that story? Absolutely, absolutely. So. At my um, very small Orthodox synagogue where I went to Hebrew school every day after public school, um, we had a contingent, a very small contingent of old men who would come in for um, evening services as we were leaving from Hebrew school around five o'clock when the sun would set. And um, oftentimes I would uh, be sitting on the stairs there waiting before I left. And this old man, um, I wish all these years later I knew his name. I, I don't, I'm not sure I ever knew his name. I'm not sure I ever actually talked with him. But he came every night for evening services, and he had um, a hunchback. He was stooped. And uh, Jewish practice when you enter into the, the, the synagogue is to reach up on the door sash and uh, touch the mezuzah and kiss the mezuzah with your with your with your lips and and to your hand and your hand to the mezuzah. Well, he really struggled to do this, as hunched over as he was. Um, the mezuzah is usually about three quarters of the way up the door sash, and he was was profoundly hunched. Um, and I would watch him standing in that doorway each night, and he would sort of inch his way up the door sash with his fingers until he could reach the mezuzah. It may have taken him. 10 minutes. Um, but he did it. It was part of his faith. It was part of his belief system. 
And it was part of the reason that I became sort of intrigued by the whole nature of faith in general. What would drive someone to do that on an everyday basis? It wasn't as if someone was standing there giving him any kind of confirmation or affirmation of his, of his activities. He did it because he believed and it made him feel better and more full inside. And, um, you know, I, I think you, you, you're right. You know, some of the greatest tragedies we see as the greatest gifts, we need the distance oftentimes to notice. Um, and, you know, bringing that up, I'm thinking about, you know, how preoccupied many of us are right now with what's going on in the Ukraine and the, the horrible things that are happening. And, you know, God, I, I hope that someday, you know, the people who are experiencing this incredible tragedy see it as, as, as a gift on the other end and that things will work out. Um, but sometimes, and I, and I suppose, you know, that is the, the funny nature of faith is, is believing when belief um, seems ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more in it. It's, it's, um, it's so inspiring to hear the story about that gentleman and then have him, have the man that you saw inspires another man in Hawaii, you know, 60 years later, or 50 years later, you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of power. I, that guy's probably smiling right now, you know, or yeah. or not. Another a few points that you brought up is I just want to tell everybody how well documented the book is. And getting back to this idea of breadcrumbs, you know, I was not even aware of Paul Valerie or the prophetic nature of D.H. Lawrence. Can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about that? Yeah, I, I, I'm a, a sort of a devotee of, of two particular um, writers that kind of follow through and, and, and weave themselves through the entire book. And one is the, the French symbolist poet, Paul Valéry, um, which some people know from his poetry, um, and some of his poetry is really outstanding, but not, not easy, not an easy read. Um, he, is not, uh, he is not Robert Frost. He is, he is incredibly difficult, even in translation. But Valéry, uh, who lived in the, at the uh, end of the 19th century into the 20th century, also um, wrote an incredible amount of prose. Um, in fact, he uh, he wrote, he kept notebooks throughout his life. And he wrote, I think there are 287 notebooks that have never been translated. Well, they've been translated, but they only have been um, been available for a long time in facsimile in the French. Some of them have been translated now. And he always thought that his greatest thought went into the notebooks. Um, but th the reason for my using him and then D.H. Lawrence, the great uh, English novelist who also wrote um, incredible essays is both of these men were commentators. They were they were what we today call public intellectuals. They were able to work in their own discipline. Uh, Lawrence primarily as a novelist, Valerie primarily as a poet, but they also had the ability to write and comment about what was going on in the world, what was going on with humanity what they saw as the future. And so I really mine both of their, both of their work um, for these little kernels that kind of helped me get through um, the discussion of, of sin in the book. Yeah, it's, it's, I've often wondered, maybe you could put a little light on this. What is it about spirituality that allows it to transcend time from the present to the past and to the future? Yeah. No, I, I think that's a great point. I mean, I think it's because we are talking about spirituality and not religion. And they're two different things, right? Um, you know, I mean, right now, uh, at this point in my life, 
um, after after decades of studying various religious traditions and and experiencing things in religious traditions of all kinds from from sitting in sweat lodges in, in Native American on a Native American reservation in South Dakota to you know attending a, a Hindu temple, all of those things. I mean, I describe myself now as more of a, of a Judist, right? I, I was a combination of, of, of being a Jew and a Buddhist um, because I really have adopted a, a, a spiritual nature more than a religious nature. Um, and so I think that spirituality does transcend time, whereas religion tends to be a little bit more constrained about time and, and even place, right? I mean, are you, are you a Roman Catholic? Yes. Okay. Well, are you a Second Vatican Catholic or are you pre-Vatican? You know, there, there, there are very sort of pigeonholed ways that religion will, will try to narrow us into a little bit of a, of a tight spot. And I think if we look at ourselves as spiritual human beings, that gets us out of that that danger of of being stuck in that pigeonhole. That's a great way to put it. It's these it's these labels that that you know they continue to foster the hobgoblin of small mindedness, right? Absolutely. I mean, just look look at look at the all the conflict, you know, the conflict around the world, which. So much of it is based on 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 labels. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, e even again, not to not to belabor it, but to go back to what's going on in the Ukraine, to 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 label the 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 Ukraine and Russia, and say that well, you know, this imaginary arbitrary line divides the two countries, and it, the, the labeling is what always bothered me about um, about Sigmund Freud. <laughs> um, is Freud loves to, to loves to label people and 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 put them in a little bit of a of a tight spot it's 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 what the diagnostic manual does today in many ways which is why in the in the book i, I really do instead embrace more of a jungian approach i really like like carl jung's psychology and have, have done a lot with his archetypal work um and think that that is a lot more um usable to us as moderns um because it allows me to look at myself jung does and say, okay, I'm a little screwed up and there's a problem there, but I can fix it. Um, Freud tends to say, you're screwed up and you're kind of screwed. Um, <laughs> you know, that's just going to be the way that it is. Um, and there's no real way to get out of that. And that seems like a, like a, a, a no-win situation to me. Yeah. You know, looking back on it, it kind of explains why Freud was the way he was. Like that's that's his. He was he was yeah. uh, diagnosing himself. I think. Oh yeah. Absolutely. You know, in in a weird way, just to take it off. Uh, you'd said about like the DSM and all these things in there. Like, it's I I have the DSM and I think it's fun to read in a way. Like the way I read it is like a bunch of people getting around and like you know who I don't like these people. We should try to get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> In a and weird you, way, you know Robert Robert Burton's great work in the 16th century, 17th century, the Anatomy of Melancholy. I don't know that. The Anatomy no, but... of Melancholy is is could be labeled as sort of one of the earliest psychology books. It's almost a precursor of the DSM, and uh, the Anatomy of Melancholy is this big, thick, thick book, and it is based on one particular question. Um, Burton wants to answer the question: Why are we depressed? Why are we melancholic as a as a as a species and uh one of my favorite sections of it is where he comes out and says that uh we're depressed because 
uh, Adam ate the fruit, and we're still really kind of bummed about that. Um, and famously, uh, Samuel Johnson, uh, Dr. Johnson of, of the English Dictionary, um, supposedly had kept a kept a copy of Burton's book on his nightstand and would read a little bit of it every night. It's it's a it's it's very interesting. Oh, I got, I'm definitely gonna have to check it out. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more on Young. Like it's in your book too. You do some work with the shadow. I think in the in the yeah. in, when we start talking about pride, which is the first sin that we're talking about, yeah. you do talk about young and the shadow. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that to my audience? Sure. So I mean, if you're not familiar with Jungian psychology, Jung part of Jung's theories is that um, each of us has uh, an aspect of ourselves that he calls the shadow self. And this isn't necessarily entirely negative. Um, it is something which we need to explore in ourselves and which may um, uncover things that we are uncomfortable with, um, uncomfortable dealing with. But until we deal with them, we can't progress on the road to what Jung calls individuation, where we really realize and understand ourselves and who we are. Um, and the best example of the shadow self is, is a fantastic scene in The Empire Strikes Back, where Luke has to go down into the cave, and he doesn't he's, he feels apprehensive about it. He, he doesn't feel good about it. Yoda tells him that, you know, he probably shouldn't go. And uh, Luke famously starts to put on his, his, uh, his belt with his lightsaber and... Yoda says, you, you won't need any weapons down there. They'll be of no use to you. And he goes into the cave, which is a, a Jungian device, and he has to confront his shadow self. And in The Empire Strikes Back, his shadow self shows up in the form of Darth Vader, who, of course, eventually we learn is his father. And he has to fight Vader in a, in a, a, a lightsaber battle in the cave he finally cuts off Vader's head. And when the head rolls on the ground, the mask disappears and the face is Luke's. So what he's got to deal with, the shadow self is him. The shadow self is us. It's the things that in us that we don't want to um, admit. Um, you know, I don't want to admit that I am a prideful person. But until I do that, I can't transcend that point and get up to a, a more advanced level of who I can be as a human being. That's a great point and a great metaphor. It, it, it makes me, I was talking to Simon Critchley uh, a week ago and we were I, talking. I love about, his work. Oh, uh, that, <laughs> I think, I think he might be, he's what he's probably my favorite philosopher. He's and terrific. Yeah. Yeah. He really he, is. He's, he is so well read and so yeah. funny and so deep. Like, I feel like if I read one or two sentences, there's like five jokes in there, you know, <laughs> it's so good. And we were talking about philosophy and time. And when you spoke about Luke going into the cave and facing his father, we were to, to add to that, we were saying that, you know, we're kind of ghosts of our fathers, like, and we, it transcends yeah. our time. And, and I just wanted to bring that part up because I, I do feel that, Sometimes the shadow is those who came before us that are still on us that you know, sure. we're trying to work with. Well, it, it, and that's that's the Jungian collective unconscious, right? It, it, it's it's everything that's come before us that we have as a part of us in some way because we all are part of that collective unconscious. Um, and so, I mean, I I don't have any 
family who lived through the Holocaust. Luckily, my family came to the United States before World War II. Um, but that doesn't mean that my um, history, my heritage as a Jew, doesn't include some trauma from those kinds of events, because Jung would argue that's part of the collective unconscious. Yeah, I, I would argue that that trauma has affected everybody. I and think it's, so. You know, a, it is it's on a human level. On a human level. And, and part of it is because we, we don't really address it, it seems like. You know, it, it's like we don't want to admit, which brings us back to pride. You know, right. it's what what is it about this thing, pride, that makes us so fearful? Well, it's interesting because pride, um, you know, the reason why it's the first sin that I address in the book is that traditionally it's been looked at as the, the source because uh, pride is the sin of which Adam and Eve are guilty in the Garden of Eden, of trying to be like God. And then again, when you delve further in and go into Paradise Lost and into Catholic theology, sin is also the, the uh, pride is also the sin that Lucifer is guilty of, which causes him to fall from heaven and become Satan. But today it's interesting because, you know, I, I, we tell people, be proud of yourself. And that's a good thing. You're like, well, wait a minute. I thought pride was a bad thing. And so what it comes down to really with all of these sins is that none of the seven deadly sins in and of themselves are bad. They are bad in excess. It is about moderation. So you can be proud of yourself and proud of doing a good job, but it's when you become excessively obsessed with yourself and obsessively obsessed with your own importance. That's when it becomes problematic. And we'll eventually talk about this when it comes to the other sins as well. Um, you know, I mean, because if you go back to Aristotle, Aristotle says pride is the crown of virtues. You're like, wait a minute, pride is a bad thing. And every and every high school kid will say, well, I learned about, about hubris, right, from Aristotle. And they're almost sort of two sides of the same coin, right, that the excess of pride then would come become hubris, whereas pride in and of itself, he says it's the greatness of soul. It's the crown of virtues. It should be something that we should celebrate. But... I would argue that today we could be proud without being guilty of pride, if that makes any sense. Um, you know, some philosophers, contemporaries have called pride the essential vice, the utmost evil, um, that it's, it's still at the root of all of our problems. But I think, um, you know, if you go back and look at C.S. Lewis, somebody like C.S. Lewis, who has some really great stuff to say about pride. Um, I mean, he, he says a proud person has to be better than everybody else. That's a problem. A proud person's never satisfied, and a proud person craves power. And if you want to assess our current state of the world, politically, socially, economically, take those three things and 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 look at the look at the world through those through that lens. A proud person has to be better than everyone, is never satisfied, and craves power. It sounds like a lot of people we probably know and could could name easily, um, you know, and and a lot of them are are leaders who you know to be to some extent have to have a degree of that in their personality in order to be a leader. 
but it has to be tempered, right? Um, it has to be tempered. And, and I think that that kind of temperance, that's the trick. That's the, that's what we're all looking for the sweet spot, right? We want to be the best that we can without being obnoxious and without being overly meek. Right. And so the, 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 the Hindu Upanishads say, you know, the, the line between love and hate is like a razor's edge. Right. And I, I love that. I've always loved that image of the razor's edge, walking the razor's edge. Um, and so much of life seems to be about walking the razor's edge. Yeah, I, I agree. Sometimes I often wonder when we talk about our leaders, I can't imagine what it's like to be a type of Jeff Bezos character that how, how can you not become corrupted when you have so much and everyone around you probably wants something from you and no one sees you as a person. So then you in turn see everybody as a number, you know, there's, it's it's almost a curse that I really wouldn't wish it on anybody to be that right. person. Like I, I can't imagine how destructive it is to your soul, right? Well, it, it it has to be, but but part of the problem I think is with a lot of folks like that, it is destructive to their soul. But they are so um, ingrained in a kind of narcissism that they can't they don't see it. Um, they're unable to see it. They can't be objective because they live a completely subjective existence. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting when eventually we get to talking about the sin of greed. You know, we can talk about somebody like Jeff Bezos, and then we can talk about the, the bunch of billionaires who have vowed to give away a lot of their money. Um, and, you know, it, 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 I think that's really been interesting, especially in the last two or three years as we've gone through COVID. Um, Jeff Bezos is making more money than anybody can imagine through COVID. He has made he has made out just fine, um, you know. And and uh, we're probably many of us guilty of 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 putting money in his pocket. Um, but I think you're right. You know, it does come down to this question of well, what does that do to your soul? But then for me, all I can do is be concerned about my soul, and so. Do I continue to buy from corporations that I don't agree with or from, uh, you know, companies which have leaders that I don't agree with? We've seen all these corporations and companies pulling out of Russia and doing business in Russia. There's been so much backlash just in the last 72 hours about the fact that uh, companies like Coca-Cola and McDonald's, I still think, have not um, said that they're they're not going to do business in Russia. And, and a lot of people are very upset about that. I'm very upset about that. Yeah, I, I wonder what the Russian Orthodox Church has to say about what's going on there. That would be interesting I, to hear their point yeah, of view, right? it would be very interesting. I, I think the sad thing is that we don't know a lot about what is being actually reported in the news. Um, I was reading an article, I think it was in the New York Times yesterday, and um, they were talking to some citizens in Moscow, and apparently they didn't even know about the invasion. Um, because Russia is controlling the media entirely, and now Putin passed that law against spreading false information, whatever that means. Um, and so I think a lot of the citizens, they, they don't even know what's going on. So it would it's be interesting to hear what the, what the Russian Orthodox Church has to say about this. But we can look back and see what the Catholic Church did during the Holocaust. <laughs> Not much. So, you know, it, 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 it's hindsight's twenty twenty. 
Um, and it's difficult when you're living through something to, to be able to figure out what the right thing is to do, because these are really complicated moral questions. Um, I mean, thankfully, uh, places like Poland have, have been receiving refugees with open arms. Um, but this is a, a humanitarian crisis that's brewing. And um, I don't know what's going to happen eventually. I mean, I, it, it's, it's so sad as someone who has studied the Holocaust and, and taught the Holocaust um, to see these images of people, uh, you know, trying to cram onto trains in Kiev to try to get out of, of the Ukraine and get across the border into Poland. And my gosh, if that doesn't look like what happened during the Holocaust, I don't know what does. Yeah, I think maybe you could you could say that a lot of what's happening in the Middle East looked like the Holocaust. You know, sure. I think that what we're seeing in Kiev is a lot of what we didn't get to see in the Middle East. And, True. you know, it's just there's so much tragedy around the world. My heart goes out to every one of these people that are just struggling to survive in, in this steamroller of an economy that's coming over. And I think it brings us back to pride, which sure. in, in a really amazing point that when I was reading the chapter on pride was this idea of how it affects the subject object relationship. That to me is amazing. Can you tell the people a little bit about that? Yeah. So we're talking about, about subjectivity and objectivity. Right. And, and my ability to be objective about myself, which is extraordinarily difficult. Uh, and that is one of the kind of the goalposts on the way to Jungian individuation is the ability to look at yourself objectively. Um, it's almost impossible um, because we see everything through a subjective lens. I mean, I, I view the world through my eyes as the only eyes I have. Um, and so I have to hope that others around me will either be um, honest and frank enough with me to point things out, but then it's up to me to take that and do something with it. And that might be through contemplation, through meditation, through therapy, to explore aspects of myself that, you know, they're kind of ugly, but you got to deal with them because otherwise they just get worse. And so some of that is about um, the difference between objective self and subjective self. And this is something which philosophers have been dealing with for a long time. Um, you know, it, 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 it borders on discussions about perspective and how I see the world. Um, how do I see the world? Do I see the world and do I see every human being as inherently evil, inherently good, how do, what is my view of existence and humanity? Because that in many ways is going to reflect on me and how I'm going to react to folks. Uh, you know, it, it, it's the simple things, isn't it? It's, 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 it's the most simple things. Do you hold the door open for somebody, right? Do you, do you, do you help somebody out if, they're, if they've dropped some things in the street? Do you help them pick it up? Um, recently, I've seen this this series of videos that have been showing up on TikTok. Um, my, my daughter got me onto TikTok. It's a, it's a, it's a black hole, I got to tell you. Um, you go down, you go in it, and, and you come out, and it's like two hours of your life are shot. But there's, there's a series of videos where um, somebody walks up to a person in what looks like a supermarket and says, you know, I, 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 I don't have any money, but I'm really thirsty you know, can you buy this bottle of water for me? And they've got their grocery cart full of stuff they're about to check out. 
and the person in every video gives the person the the, the dollar for the water or whatever it is and in response that person says well i'm going now it, it's a it's a it's a come on and says i'm going to i'm going to pay for all your groceries to and, and the person says well why and it was because well you're willing to help somebody else out someone then should help you out i mean some of it's that that kind of goofy pass it along thing that people do at starbucks which you know quite honestly if you do that you're better off putting money in the tip jar because the baristas could use it um, if people are in line at Starbucks, they can already afford their coffee. Um, help the baristas out instead. Um, but it, it, so I think it's a, so much of this and so much of the book is about how we treat each other as human beings, how we exist. And of course, in the last two years during COVID, we have been challenged to the max. Now, the book was finished before COVID. Um, I, I call the COVID years now like the lost weekend because I've you know, the book came out right before COVID. And, and so I haven't had a chance to really do much with it. And so I'm I'm grateful for this opportunity with you, George. Yeah. I, are you kidding me? I am. I am grateful for it, too. I, I think, you know, getting back to there's a reason that things happen. I think your book is it was like, hey, hang on a second. We're going to need this. We're going to need this book in two years. So just hold on. You know, <laughs> it's coming because I think that there's so much great information in here and it's so dense. It, it's like I said, it's to everybody listening to this, the book is called Seven Deadly Sins. Do yourself a favor and pick it up because it is, it's one of the books you can read through. I can read, I've already read the first chapter multiple times and I keep finding, to taking new notes and writing stuff down and, you know, just to stay on the topic of the subject object relationship. Yeah. You know, you bring up a lot of, I, I think it really shows your expertise to talk about maybe the early years of, of spirituality and religion. And you bring up a lot of mystics from the mid medieval times. Yeah. And I, I was wondering, do you think maybe the reason that the definitions of pride have changed is because the English language in the subject object relationship has changed through the time? Uh, to be sure. And I, and I think what has also changed is the way that we, understand ourselves and our and and other people um you know early on in uh in the history of literature for example um if you read 12th century french romances um thing arthurian romances like chrétien de troyes um they're pretty much um the first things that really delve into character um before that the stories are you know George went here, George went there, George killed this guy, George got into a battle. It was very sort of C-spot run. Chrétien de Troyes is the first one who really sorts of starts to delve into what does character mean? What is the interior? What does our interior look like? Um, and without that, I mean, we wouldn't have somebody like Hamlet. We wouldn't have Harry Potter, right, who is able to, to really look within and 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 study himself and share that with the reader. Um, you don't get that prior to about the 12th century French romance uh, genre. Um, and I think by the time we get to something like the 14th century mystics, like Richard Rowell and Marjorie Kemp and Julian of Norwich and Walter Hilton, the English mystics, and then on the continent in, in, uh, in Europe, um, people like Meister Eckhart, you know, so there are, um, others, but by the time we get to them, they have fully now been invested in studying the self as an object 
and the self as a subject in its relationship with the divine. And so, you know, there's a great line in Richard Roll's book called The Fire of Love, which is essentially a memoir. And he's recalling a, 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 a situation where he really kind of, he was guilty of pride. He, 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 he became too big for his own britches, my grandmother would say. Um, he, he really became self-important. And a woman really chastised him. And it forced him to kind of withdraw, pull back, and really think about what he'd done. And the line in the English translation is, when I came to myself. And in the original Latin, it's interesting because the Latin word for myself is actually um, one word, and you have to parse it out. But when I came to myself, and I, I think that that's just so intriguing that he was able to pull back and really look at himself as an object from an objective perspective and come to his self and realize, you know what? I was a bit of a twit and I shouldn't have done that. Um, and I was really guilty of, of, of the sin of pride of, of, of being more important than I, than I am or thinking I'm more important than I am. And I think so many of us are, um, are guilty of that today. And there's always that danger of, of thinking we are more important than we really are, right? I mean, we have all these phrases, right? Oh, he thinks he walks on water, right? I mean, you know, and we, we apply it all the time. So we've got a lot going on in the world. And um, part of that, I think, as I discuss in other parts of the book, we can uh, chalk up to a, um, an increasing focus on technology um, and with that, then an inability to take any time to actually do that contemplation and that reflection um, where we disconnect, um, where we're not connected to our phone, where we shut off the computer and we shut off the TV. And it's difficult to do um, because, I mean, the, the studies have shown in, in psychology that we get dopamine hits from these things, right? We get a high from these things. And so it's difficult because it becomes addictive. But it is so important for us to take a moment to stop and reflect. Reflect on who we are, what's going on, what can I do? And you can't do that in the midst of what uh, David Shanks once called data smog, right? Where you've just got all of this incoming data and it's this a whirlwind of things going on and there's no time. And so that's probably partially responsible for the incredible growth we've seen in the last few years in people engaging in meditation, right? I mean, how many meditation apps can you download now? Um, ironically, right? Um, but I've got, a, I've got a good friend who is a Cistercian monk, a Trappist monk in Massachusetts, and they constantly have people coming to visit, to, to do retreats. Um, people want to have that opportunity to kind of shut down and it gives them the opportunity i think to become more thoughtful people right full of thought um, we tend to be rather thoughtless in the way we operate on a day-to-day -day level and um we're partially to blame but you know the world that we have built around us ain't helping yeah i couldn't agree anymore i i 
I'm a big fan of Marseille Eliade, and you know he talks about the the uh, terror before the sacred. And when my daughter was going through COVID, and I, I, I'm willing to bet most parents with young kids felt the same way. My daughter's seven, so she was six and trying to Zoom and do all this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, what, what I came to the conclusion of after reading Eliade during that time was like, there's no felt presence of the other. And that's so important to have. Like when you talked about reflection, like how else can you see yourself, your mistakes, your pride? How else can you see the good and the bad in you unless there's someone to reflect it back at you? Well, and and, and I think you're right. But I also think it is it is possible to to conduct that kind of inner study um, in solitude with the guide of those who've come before us. So you probably have guessed from reading the book, George, that I'm a, a book fanatic. Um, I have more books than I can count. Um, my library is huge. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, you want to go off into the woods? like Yeah, I love to. <laughs> you know, some folks have done, then, you know, go off into the woods. But, but maybe bring Ignatius Loyola's spiritual exercises with you. Right. And he'll guide you. It's a guidebook on how to conduct spiritual exercises. Now, it's it's intended. Granted, the Jesuits um, do it with us with it, with a, a, a person directing you. Um, but there are lots of guides like that from the Desert Fathers. If you want to go back centuries from medieval mystics who have done this kind of work where they have essentially cut themselves off from the world in order to um, edify their their spirituality, um, their souls. Um, Julian of Norwich did it. Um, you know, I wouldn't rec recommend becoming an anchorite these days. <laughs> Some people do, but um, that's a pretty tough existence. But there are ways to do it. Uh, you know, I have a, a good friend from high school who's an artist living in Paris now. And once a year, for a month, she goes on what she calls a Facebook sabbatical. She posts a note on Facebook and says, I'm gone for the next month. Don't contact me here because I'm not logging on. And I got all the respect for that. Um, it's, it, it, you know, if you're, if you're a, a daily user of Facebook, that's a difficult thing to do. But I think it shows how, how reliant we are on these things. And you talk about your daughter. My daughter is, is 18. And, um, you know, I've been observing college students for over 30 years and uh, oh my gosh, they are connected to their phones in ways that there is no way this is healthy. But part of it is we can't be the the old fogies who say, oh well, you really should, you know, go read a book, <laughs> um, because that's not the world that they're growing up in. That's not the world they live in. Uh, you know, year many years ago, a, a dean said something to me which was incredibly impactful, so much so that I'm repeating it now, it's stuck with me. Um, I was teaching Introduction to Philosophy in South Dakota. Um, and I, I, I saw George somewhere along the line, you were reading a lot of Nietzsche. <laughs> and when I taught the course, I modeled it on the course that I took when I took Introduction to Philosophy at Fordham, which was a deep dive into several philosophers. It wasn't a survey. So we read all of one of Nietzsche's works. We read, you know, all of, uh, you know, one of David Hume's work. And I, I set the course up like that, and it was a disaster. 
an absolute disaster. And a dean said to me, David, they're not you. <laughs> and that had stuck with me. They're not. My daughter is not me. Your daughter is not you. Um, they're living in a different time. The world is a completely different place from what we remember. Um, and we can remember that fondly and try to pass that along to them. But expecting them to be updated versions of us is, is foolhardy. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, I was born two weeks to the day before Kennedy was shot. Uh, my father was a little older when he had me. And so as a result, I've always felt like I had one foot sort of back in the era that my father grew up in and then one foot in the 60s and 70s. And um, it's interesting because I'll talk to people and as a result, my references are all over the place. Um, and I think a lot of that, and I, I thank my father for that. I mean, if it weren't for my father, I wouldn't have been introduced to Benny Goodman, right? Uh, my father saw Benny Goodman when he was a kid and, and, and loved Benny Goodman. And he played the, the Carnegie Hall concerts for me when I was a kid. And oh my God, that was the greatest thing. Um, but I'm not him. Um, and kids today are not us. And I think we need to acknowledge that the world has changed. Um, maybe it hasn't changed from our perspective in a better way, but we can't do anything about that. And we can't hide our kids away in a, in a, in a closet and try to protect them from a dangerous world as much as we want to. We are doing them no favors when we do that. Um, and so I, I always found it odd when, when parents um, would say, you know, well, you know, I've got middle school kids and uh, I don't allow them on social media and I only allow them to watch TV for two hours a day. I'm like, okay, do you do realize that when they get to college, they are going to be the oddballs? <laughs> They're not going to understand any of the pop culture references. They're not going to have the same, same frame of reference as their colleagues do. Now, you could say, okay, who cares? You know, maybe that's not such a bad thing. But um, we, got, we have to be a part of the world that we live in. Uh, you know, I, I would love to shut off the news and not hear any more about what's going on in Ukraine. Um, but that would be ignorant. Um, and, you know, the, the root word of ignorant is ignore. Right. I know it's there, but I choose to ignore it. That I, I mean, talk about pride. Right. I mean, there there's pride. Right. I'm I'm above that. I don't need to know about that. <laughs> um, those people they are suffering. Oh, well, that's. That's, you know, that's their problem. I'm, I'm above their problems. I'm not in, a human being. In some ways, though, like if I could just push back on that for a moment, like what isn't it kind of prideful to think that we can do anything to help them? And we have so many people here that need our help. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's always that that conundrum. Right. Um, and people will say, well, you know, we should help the people in our backyard first. Um, and they may be right. And maybe maybe shame on us for not not realizing that sooner and not helping the people in our backyard sooner. Um, I think the fact of the matter is we need to be um, we need to be humane. So let me let me reframe that in the time that we have here, George. Sure. So I'm not talking necessarily about helping people in um, monetary ways or helping people even in um, necessarily intangible physical ways. 
I mean, sure, I would love to get on a plane today and fly to, you know, Kiev and 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 help people at that train station. I don't know what I can do. I would love to do that, but I also am aware enough that I really can't be any help there. So what can I do? Well, I can look to places where maybe they need funding to help. Um, and I can do that for my backyard as well. Um, I can look to reaching out to people I know. I have a colleague here who is is from Ukraine. Her family is in one of the towns which has been under siege. And I reach out to her almost daily to say, you know, checking in with you, how you doing? Um, it's that humanity that we seem to have in some ways lost. And that is just incredibly sad that we have... We, we, we've lost our ability in some ways to treat each other as human beings. I don't know if we forgot how to do it, um, if technology got in the way. And certainly, as you say, I mean, you know, the two years of being on Zoom calls through COVID certainly didn't help the kids um, because there was no relating to human beings. And we're seeing it already as the kids come back to school that there are different kinds of issues popping up now not only in their intellectual development, but in their matur maturation, in their in their personal development and how they relate to people. So, you know, th this, this, this bit about, let's think about each other as human beings. And as you said earlier, not as numbers, mm. not as this faceless bunch. Um, you know, last night I was watching CNN and they were showing that train station in Kiev and they were showing these, these these kids sitting in the trains in the train you know with their window uh, their faces pressed up against the windows um i mean how terrifying but then sunday i did a a, a virtual tour of auschwitz hmm. online and and the the presenter showed us photos of jews polish jews getting on trains little kids with yellow stars sewn onto their coats and it was the same photo the same picture that I saw of people on that train in Kiev, we're humans. And so if we can get away from the labeling, if we can get away from the pigeonholing and just say, you know what, you're another human being. And that's how I'm going to relate to you. I don't care about your belief system. I don't care about your nationality. I don't care about what you look like. You're a human being and so am I we would do well to take our cue from dogs and cats and see the way that they cats treat each other and dogs treat each other and the way that dogs and cats that aren't even related will nuzzle up against each other. Uh, don't, you know, don't, yeah. don't you think though that like, if we want to treat each other like human beings and, and the media shows pictures of the Holocaust and then the Ukrainians, aren't they trying to show the division? Like we're not human, like this is one group and this is the other group. Like that's the opposite of seeing each other as equals. And it I just continues they, that divide. But I think what they're trying to do, and I don't want to get into the mind of the media because <laughs> I know it's so talk toxic. about a dangerous place. Uh, but I think, <laughs> I think that the ultimate goal there is to show us about what power unchecked looks like and how that affects all people um you know there have been several terrific books written just in the last couple of years on tyranny yeah. um, and the dangers of tyranny political tyranny philosophical tyranny um i've been reading hannah arendt's the human condition um arendt was the 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 reporter at the nuremberg trials and the great philosopher um and um 
it's a, it's an incredibly dense read about political theory um, and the dangers of a tyrannical society. Um, and you know, if we're not living through that right now, I don't know who did. Um, we are living through a tyrannical situation in Ukraine. We we and I was saying to a friend of mine the other day, and and you know, I, I don't want to to walk over the line here and get too political, but you know, I mean, what's happening now in Russia with Putin was the danger of what would have happened if I believe if Donald Trump had been elected to a second term. Um, it would have been power unchecked and and just an ego unchecked and 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 both figures who are incredibly guilty of the worst kind of pride possible, which again is that excessive preoccupation with the self and one's self-importance. Man, that is that is a lot to think about. It is a lot to think about. That's why I don't sleep well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad I want to be mindful of your time, Doctor. We're sure. we're almost in an hour and I, I'm sure you have some things you gotta handle. But I want everybody to know that this is a phenomenal book. And uh, Dr. Solomon and I are going to be back, I think, next Tuesday at the same time. And we're going we're gonna to cover more of them. Like, I, I really hope everybody goes out and, and just, just pick the book up. It's Seven Deadly Sins by Dr. Solomon. It is well worth the read. You will learn a lot about where the, the ideas of sin came from, where they're going. And you if you pick it up now, you can you can talk to us about what you think and ask us questions and all of uh, Dr. Solomon's uh, links are below. And is there anything you want to leave us with? Where can people find you and, and what would you like to leave us with? Sure. Well, my, my website is, is uh, davidasolomon.com and Solomon is spelled S-A-L-O-M-O-N. I may have the wisdom of Solomon, but I don't have the name. <laughs> um, and uh, all of my, my, my work is up on that page and links to my blog and, and links to other things. And uh, I guess I could tease next week and say we're going to talk about lust. Yes, I'm so excited for it. Thank you so much for spending time with us. I, I feel like Appreciate I learned it. a lot, and I, I really enjoyed the book, and I'm looking forward to speaking to you again. I hope you have a phenomenal day. Thanks so much. And your Kurt. family's doing well. Thank you so much Thank for you. everything. You as well. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.